0: Welcome to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. This podcast may contain swearing, plus it will be filled with lots of interesting chat. All the views are expressed
1: our own and are not those of our institutions or employers. You're welcome to share your own views in the comment box on the website. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. You
0: can find out more on our website, inthezonepodcast.com or on Spotify,
1: iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also like us on Facebook. So, without further ado, here's this week's episode.
0: Hello and welcome to the In The Zone podcast with me, Mike Ryder. And me, Josh Hughes. In today's episode, we are joined by Kate Milroy, um, a vet working in the charity sector. Kate also has the great honour and privilege of being my sister. So, (laughs) (laughs) even more excitement in this podcast. (laughs) Hello, Kate.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me. Well thank you for
0: coming on. So the reason we invited you on obviously is because we've been talking about this for a while now about um, your life as a vet and I thought it'd be an interesting topic for discussion.
2: Okay sure.
0: So I mean to start with I think the first question is what What does the life of a vet involve? What, what is a, a normal day in your life at the moment?
2: Well yeah as you say I'm in the charity sector um, and I specifically work with small animals So there's a massive range of like veterinary careers and ways that you can go. But for my particular role, I'm also sort of a team manager. So I have sort of a a team of vets that I look after um, and I'm in the management team for my practice as well. So um, my day typically starts with dealing with emergencies that come in um, from our sort of overnight care provider. Um, that's always sort of the start of the day and any any random cases that, that tend, to tend to turn up. Um, and then maybe doing sort of consults for most of the day or, or various surgeries. Um, at the moment it's particularly different with uh, the sort of coronavirus situation that we won't talk too much about, um, but that is throwing somewhat of a spanner in the works. Um, But yes, basically, I I never know what's going to come in the door, see different things every single day. Um, So it's very, very difficult to get bored, which is what I like. (laughs) That's
1: good. One thing I was going to ask is what's the difference between a a vet in the charity sector and the other sectors?
2: So for the charity that I work for, we basically provide reduced um, cost and in some cases sort of only donation based, so it's sort of like free um veterinary care to people that can't afford it. Um so as a charity we work in a different we're not so much of a business as as other veterinary practices would be. So our aims are sort of different, which is which is great. So our aims are more sort of improving animal welfare, improving education of owners and Overall, sort of providing good care to, to animals, so we sort of focus on neutering, vaccinations, and all that kind of thing. Um, whereas vets in a in a private practice will more sort of have to bear the business in mind and, and not necessarily have that same sort of focus. Some of them will, but overall, it's 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 more of a, a welfare focus that we have.
1: Okay, that's really interesting because I I. I um... Obviously you sort of see animal charities and with vets and stuff but I'd, I'd never really thought about there being um, a significant difference between them but uh, that's really interesting, thank you. Uh, another thing was why was the focus on small animals?
2: So for, I mean I know everyone sort of thinks of vets as like sort of James Herriot doing a bit of everything, um, the veterinary profession as a whole has sort of progressed quite a lot since that so our knowledge of all the different areas and and our sort of skill sets in all the different areas and the specialties have sort of increased a lot in in those species so to these days to sort of be a proper mixed vet is a very difficult thing um and they're sort of becoming rarer and rarer really as as time goes on specifically for me i i prefer small animal um because i mean that's sort of where my my passion lies in sort of improving animal animal welfare for for the animals that I can best do that for I suppose um, farm animals has never really been been my thing I'm I'm a vegan so farmers don't tend to really like me very much um, <laughs> and uh, yes I, I find horses quite quite challenging so. I'm most comfortable and have most knowledge around around small animals and they're what I most enjoy working with. Um, but having said that, I, I do miss some of my university days of sort of lambing and things like that.
1: Uh, well, that's, that's really interesting because um, I suppose from the outside, lots of people think of vets and, and think, oh, you must be able to do with every animal. But, you know, thinking about it, actually, that's not really possible. Um, and Mike's mentioned yeah. to me before that in sort of veterinary school, you kind of focus on um the most common animals and the rest of them it's it's kind of you have to go more specialized sort of education to do with them
2: yeah so with um veterinary university you do sort of the main species so yeah dogs cats horses sheep cows are sort of the main the main players and pigs of course um, pigs with four legs <laughs> yeah basically basically and then you have some some areas on, on sort of exotics as well there is sort of the question as to whether veterinary school your teaching should be more specific to even sort of just small animal just farm animal that sort of thing for the whole course or maybe part of the course you decide which path you want to go down so you just focus on those areas um because of course for a lot of people that go into vet school they do know what they want to do at the end of it but um that's sort of a, a question that's that's in in debate really
0: yeah I mean it's it's fascinating just the sheer variety of things you get trained in. Obviously I've got experience because a lot of the time whilst you were on your placements you were staying with me and I, I have these memories of driving you into the wilderness and just leaving you in a small caravan in a field and thinking you've got to stay there for two for two weeks in the middle of nowhere where like anything could happen to you on like a pig farm or sort of sheep cows um, or whatever it's sort of absolutely Bizarre. and it's something I don't think many people realise when they think of vets. Um, it's, it's, it's a completely different um, route I suppose through medicine than it would be say if you were training to be a doctor for example.
2: Oh yeah definitely I think veterinary school as a whole is is very much a, a life experience and um, you end up in all kinds of different scenarios like you say sort of places in the middle of nowhere um, various farms doing various night shifts and things like that Um, and then also sort of more exotic things like wildlife um, care. I did some work on a couple of zoos as well Um, and a lot of people also go abroad to do sort of work with animals in in the wild abroad as well so there's lots of different things you can do with it even just in your training which is pretty cool really.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, mo- most people thing. probably won't realize that you actually have to arrange your training yourself, don't you really? You have to actually approach all these different, um, like, um, I don't know what to say, like farms and um, various places to actually sort it out yourself. I know, you, obviously, you've got to cover the, the bare minimum of, sort of um, breadth of different types of placement. But it's something that you actually have to organize, which seems just crazy, really. Um, but obviously, that that's then taken you all around the UK and to various places. Um, which is which is quite people might probably won't realise, I don't think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's different sort of parts to the course, um, but yeah, the placements you do throughout the whole five years, um, and yeah, you, you do organise them yourself. There are sort of access to sort of database and and other students' knowledge, of course. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's you trying to phone up farmers, which are notoriously difficult to get hold of, um, and arrange these sort of places and yeah, I've, I've literally been all over the UK with, with the placements that I've done, including sort of a train station, which only sort of the carriages would just be one single carriage and you'd have to walk across the, the train line to get to the side, that sort of thing. So really random random oh. places in the middle of nowhere.
1: Yeah. I, I was quite interested to hear, to, um, um, Mike said that you might sort of go to a farm or a placement and stay there for a couple of weeks. Um, that seems, I suppose, it seems unusual to me because my sort of understanding of um, vets basically comes from, you know, taking my dog to the vet or um, TV, where usually kind of it's on TV, it seems like vets go out to farms because they get phoned up in the middle of the night because, I don't know, you know, a, a cow's giving birth or something. But So I was quite interested to hear about the um, the fact they have to stay on these, at these placements for quite a substantial amount of time.
2: Yeah, so that's only in the sort of veterinary school perspective and um, so as part of the training part of your practical experience is going to, to farms and doing sort of husbandry experience they basically call it um, so that's where I've sort of spent weeks living on, on farms working with farmers and helping them look after their animals and, and things like that and then as you go on in the course you do more sort of clinical based experience where you're working alongside qualified vets when you're still at vet school um, but yeah when you when you do get into Past that, then, 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 yeah, vets generally sort of just travel to farms.
0: Oh, that's
1: fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've got good to bring up a sort of funny little story, little aside here. Um, Kate's husbandry of animals, as it were, sort of came came to light because really, I, I didn't really, I don't think I really appreciated uh, the sorts of random skills that you learn here. Um, we were going, we were on a hike once, weren't we, Kate, in Faversham, and uh, we had mm. there a massive herd of cows blocking our way through this gate. And um, Kate put on her cow husbandry voice. And, <laughs> but, but the thing is, cows are big, scary animals. Like, there's a, there's a lot of weight behind those cows. There's probably a hundred cows. Um, but but we, we basically, we were able to turn the cows away and uh, lead them down this really long path. Because they're herd animals, they all walk one behind the other. Um, so we led this, this great big convoy of cows through the middle of Faversham, well, not through the middle of Faversham, round, round the edge of and but I don't know, it was it was, it was a, it was a big insight for me into just sort of the different things that you have to sort of deal with. And when you always sort of used to come back and used to talk about sort of herding sheep and things like this, and um, well, just sort of even sort of managing sheep, because they're, they're quite weighty animals, aren't they? And they can actually cause you <laughs> quite a lot of injury.
2: Yeah, and I mean, in, in your defence of being scared of the cows, they were beef cows, at least. Um, but yes, yeah, we did. We did <laughs> <laughs> those were hey, I wasn't a scared bit. of the cows.
0: There were just a lot of them, and they were looking quite... Uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah, you, you, you do learn to have a bit of a farmer voice after a while of working with farm animals, um, which they do tend to respond to. But yes, you can, you can get some very, very serious injuries um, from farm work. Um, one of my friends does still do work in farming and, and, and yeah, she's had a, a fair few kicks. At um, school I had a few bruised ribs from being head butted by a sheep, but uh, luckily I've not had anything too serious. Well, it's quite
1: interesting, this this husbandry aspect, because um, I've just finished watching the Tiger King documentary um, and I was quite astounded that people were willing to just sort of go into a cage with tigers and lions and various other exotic animals that you would just assume would take someone's head off and then just walk around and feed them and basically just play with them. It, I was quite astounded that, um, that that sort of husbandry aspect can, can extend to... Um, you know, exotic animals as well. Because um, I mean I, I, I remember hearing a story about um, when Mike Tyson bought a, bought a tiger and somebody had said he was basically the only person in the world who could have kept this tiger because he was the, he who had this ultimate confidence um, and it t- turns out that story is, must be true because all of these people who run private exotic pet vets pet, pet zoos and things also have them. Um, so that husbandry aspect is quite fascinating to me, I think, at the moment.
2: Well, it's a bit of an ethical can of worms you've opened there.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose it is. Like... I was going to
2: say, I didn't, I didn't want to steal your thunder
0: there, Kate, but I'll let you carry on. <laughs>
2: um, yes, it is, it is a bit of a can of worms. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the sort of places you see abroad where you can go and pose with tigers, lions, etc. Uh, most of those animals are sedated and spend most of their lives sedated and, and chained up so it's 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 not as impressive as it might seem that these guys can stand around these lines and not get eaten oh so i've been duped like the customers <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh
2: well um, at least, we're, yeah, we're, at least we know the
0: truth now. That, but... wow yeah, i mean even a trained vet wouldn't want to go into a into a cage with a tiger i don't think i mean if when you watch these zoo programs yeah. you see like the sort of the, the amount of, sort of safety and security
2: um, yeah. that they
0: ha- they have around these things i mean kate you, you did some work in a zoo didn't you? You, you i remember you getting involved with moving rhinos around weren't you
2: yes yeah yeah we moved some rhinos which is pretty pretty tricky but um yeah the big cat section is definitely sort of the most most dangerous that I, I had at the zoo that I was at, and uh, yeah, you 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 wouldn't see them walking in into a into a cage with them, that's for sure.
0: No, I mean, so obviously now you're in small vets, um, small animal vets, and um, but I, I imagine you must you must be confronted with all sorts of different animals, different um, sort of types of cases, and being able to adapt to them, and obviously dealing with um, the owners as much as the animals themselves. I wonder maybe you could share with us like just some insight into what it's like working in a small animal practice on a day to day basis. I mean, is is it mainly cats and dogs that you see? What sort of animals do come in, do you find?
2: Yeah, so the majority of what we see at my practice are dogs and cats. Um, We do also see sort of rabbits and guinea pigs and then other small fairies, e.g. hamsters, um, gerbils, etc. We don't see any reptiles at my practice. particular vets um, so yeah our, our majority is sort of the the dogs and cats that they take up the the most of our our care um, on the side of sort of the the rabbits and, and guinea pigs they are sort of generally thought of as to be the more neglected pets um because their needs aren't sort of appreciated necessarily by, by people that, that take them on because they are so easy to to get from a pet shop and, and buy a little hutch and, and pop them in there so when it comes to sort of rabbits and guinea pigs a lot of what we we do is actually sort of based on educating them on on sort of proper husbandry. Um, In terms of sort of dogs and cats here's a a real sort of variation in in, in case one minute you might sort of have a, a cat that's been hit by a car and um, the next minute you might have a have a dog that's sort of got a a, a life-threatening infection and um, it's very much different hour to hour day to day etc and um, owners can be challenging i would say um it's It's about sort of appreciating their perspective most of the time because I do work in the the charity sector a lot of the the people that we we care for because these are sort of people that 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 need this out that their own benefits and things like that quite often they are going through very difficult times in their own lives as as well which um, adds extra challenge to to them dealing with these critical situations with their pets and who for most people are sort of part of their family and and, and very good sort of like their best friends etc so it, it can it can make things quite difficult and can make things quite heated sometimes when when you've got all this sort of elements at, at play um but yeah you I think with a a bit of experience you, you, you learn to sort of manage these situations uh but yes it is it's a challenge
1: it's really interesting that you said um care for these people as well. Um, and I, sp- I, sp- I suppose, in a way, the, the type of veterinary practice that you do, um, well, I, I mean, you've mentioned sort of education sort of aspects, but do you almost feel there's kind of a, a, a social worker aspect to, to what you do in, in your particular situation?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think there is, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of the, the people we work with are sort of quite elderly, so some of them will just... Come to the practice, or, or call us just because they want to talk to someone. Um, they might not necessarily have much of a problem with their with their pet, but will will we'll want to just just have a chat really. Um, and then you might have people in in more sort of serious situations. Um, for instance, with with sort of domestic abuse. Um, so there's the, the links group, I don't know if you guys would have, would have heard of them, um, but the link between animal abuse and, and domestic abuse and, and child abuse is sort of quite well documented now. Yeah. Um, so it's it's part of our responsibility really as, as veterinarians to, to try and pick up on these things and, and help these people where we can, um, but those are definitely the most sort of challenging um, um, aspects.
1: Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, because that link is is um, quite set, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, lots of people know about it, and it's it's what am I trying to say. It's it's, it's sh- shown quite strongly. Um, so that's quite interesting. So, do you, um, in terms of education and and preventing animal neglect, do you think there's, there's perhaps a, a link to a to kind of to preventing further types of neglect later on? i'm quite I'm, that's quite a big question actually <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's
2: my. um i i mean i th- i think there is to be honest with you i mean a lot of it is people might not understand um for instance your dog has some hair your dog needs to be brushed and if if you don't get that on board as a, a puppy then yeah maybe down the line that dog's gonna have mats that are bigger than than the dog itself which is something we do see sometimes um so yeah the the education is is really really important to make them not make them but explain to them and, and help them understand why it is the animal needs what they need um and then i think that helps on in multiple ways in, including sort of how they raise themselves sort of behaviorally as well and um, for instance a, a lot of people with the dogs pulling on the lead for instance, um, they might sort of yank them back and, and shout them though no, hit them on the nose, that, that sort of thing, sort of a bit more of their old school behavioural uh, control um, and that can, can rapidly get worse and, and become abuse and become sort of hitting etc if they don't understand that that's not actually going to help and, and explain to them what can help and, and what can sort of benefit them in that training.
1: Right, that's, 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 there's two things of everything there, because um, sort of, you know, explaining explaining to somebody about that their, their, their hair and their puppy is matted and, and that would affect the dog as they get older, um, of course, once once you sort of explain that to them, if, if they don't understand that issue, then perhaps they could also take that forward to recognise the issue with, with like their child or something. Um, that's one thing that made me think about it. but then <laughs> with the, um, dealing with the dog that pulls what, what is this thing that you're supposed to do because <laughs> I would just <laughs> go back
2: <laughs> so there's there's lots of different ways you can do it but basically I think as a whole behaviorist now accept that sort of positive reinforcement is is the best way and the, the way forward for, for both getting effective results and for for being the most humane and and Kind way to 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 teach dogs really, um, so yeah. There, there's there's lots of different ways you can go about it, um, but generally the the whole principle of positive reinforcement is that you're praising them for doing the right thing and not telling them off for doing the wrong thing.
1: Right. Okay. Well, we're being very educational
0: today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is this is fascinating. It's also interesting because obviously I don't we don't really talk about this very much in our normal conversations, Kate. So it's actually quite fascinating to gain insight into. The world that you inhabit. So I've got a few listener questions for you actually. Um, I, I, I was t- telling a few of our re- regular listeners um, in an off-air conversation that I was um, going to be talking to you um, today and uh, I've got a list um, okay. which, which is open for debate. Some of them might be a podcast in themselves but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. The first one and I think this is probably one of the most interesting ones actually Um, and it has come up in conversations we've had over the years um, even before you started training to be a vet. Um, Do you need to love animals to be a good vet? Oh
2: that is an interesting question.
0: Yeah so just to (laughs) fill fill in some blanks here just why should you have a chance to to think about this. I know we've had conversations in the past because obviously you've worked with a range of different vets in your time and vets from different cultures different backgrounds and one thing you've often mentioned is that that sometimes people from certain parts of the world view animals in a slightly different way and obviously i know just how much you love animals and i know that you believe maybe loving animals is a fundamental part of what you do but obviously there's a line isn't there i suppose to be drawn between loving animals and then either loving them too much or maybe not loving them enough as a professional, aside from a, as, a, as an owner of an animal. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult line, I guess, isn't it?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you definitely have to care, I, I believe, and, and, and care about the needs of, of animals to to be a vet and, and to get, partly just to get through the, the, the trauma of vet school, um, but also to be good as a vet. I think you do need to, to have that caring element. I think, one of the, the dangers is that a lot of people go in and want to be a vet just because they love animals. And I think that is an issue. Um, and it is increasingly being recognized as an issue um, that if you just go into veterinary just because you love animals and you don't like people, <laughs> which I'm not, I'm not saying is the, the situation for myself, um, because as I think I've explained, people are a really fundamental part of of the veterinary profession and having those interactions with clients and being able to explain everything to them and having the understanding of what they're going through and why that might be that they are then maybe being more difficult with with you um, is really sort of fundamental to being a good vet in my opinion. Um, So yes, I I think it is very, very important to care for animals. Um, and I very much definitely do absolutely love animals Um, but I think there needs to be more than that to be a a good vet.
0: Yeah and I was just thinking of another angle on this as well in terms of the care that you can give for an animal and obviously when you have to make difficult decisions and you're also weighed up against these very difficult competing uh, sort of arguments from owners sometimes because Obviously, you're, you're dealing with owners who have their own agendas and their own different levels of education about things. And I wonder sometimes, because you've got this, uh, this sense sometimes of maybe prolonging an animal's life too long or not prolonging it long enough. And I suppose that's always an ethical challenge for you on almost a daily basis, I, I imagine. And obviously that then is fed into by your own personal sort of love for an animal and wanting to do the best you can, which I I, I say, I would suggest is probably one of the most unique challenges that sort of enters the, the veterinary profession
2: yeah absolutely i mean euthanasia is is one of the biggest challenges um at the end of the day the there was sort of a, a big survey in in america i think the the pet food manufacturers did it and they just looked at what it is that that clients want um, and basically they surmised that they want their pets to be sort of happy healthy pain free and to live forever um which i think is all sort of things that aren't aren't that surprising um but are obviously not possible um so a big a big part of being a, a vet is actually managing expectations of clients and and what we can achieve for their pets um for me i'm very much um, in in the boat of prioritising the quality of life rather than the quantity of life. Um, and I mm. think, on the whole, when you sort of explain to owners and help them understand what it is that their animal is going through, um, people are very receptive to that and, and people will generally right. understand that and, and, and get on board with, with what might be the best plan for, for their pets. Um, but at the end of the day, we can never tell an owner what to do with their pet. We as vets, certainly in the, in the UK, it is our job to um, put the options on the table, um, but we cannot say you must put your pet to sleep or you cannot put your pet to sleep.
0: Mm. It's, it's very difficult, and I, I guess there, there are also yeah. yeah sorry, sorry Josh, I was just going to say there are specific cha- there are specific challenges, aren't there? Because you're in the charity sector and the available options to you as a charity vet that say might be open to a vet in a private sector where perhaps there's more money um available to do sort of certain treatments that aren't available in the charity sector
2: yeah definitely we we are more limited as to to what we can offer and and what we can do in terms of sort of investigations as well um but saying that we I think we do offer a very good uh, care for for what we have available to us. I mean, a lot of the clients that we, we do see, they do come from private practice, having then not been able to afford what has been offered there. Um, and if we if we didn't exist, those animals would be the animals that are put to sleep simply because the, they couldn't afford to have any treatment. Um, so we, we do see it from... From that perspective as well, um, but yes, it, it's it's it definitely is a challenging situation when when you when you get an animal that you know it would benefit from X Y Z that a private vet might be able to offer, but that's not something that the owner is able to to perhaps do. So for for us, it's really about what's the next best thing that we can do, what's the next best way that we can improve this animal and, and their owner's life.
1: Wow, that's uh, that must be really heartbreaking. Um, but it it makes me think of um, like the U.S. healthcare system, and that people some people can't get treatments they need because they simply can't afford it. Um, and you know, we with the National Health Service think of that as absolutely abhorrent, but then we allow it to happen to our animals. That's quite interesting.
2: Yeah, definitely. And on the on the same sort of token, it then though. They has produced this um, sort of feeling of entitlement um, from some people that, that that do sort of use our service. Um, you on the on the whole, most people that that use sort of our charity are incredibly, incredibly grateful and, and understand what we are doing with our limited resource. Um, but you do then then do get this sort of very, very small minority of people that then feel that they're entitled to more. So why can't we get them more treatment? Why can't we do it for free? Why do they um, need to go elsewhere to get X, Y, Z? Um, it, it can become sort of a little bit challenging with that. And I th- think that's almost one of the one negatives that comes from, from, from the NHS is, is that people have this entitlement that they should get what they want for free and there should not be a, a limitation to that.
0: Yeah, I mean that sounds like it's a massive challenge um as as you say and obviously you're you're on the front line of this because you're you're in this position you're in this unique position where you where you're, you're dealing with all sorts of people and obviously you've got the as we were saying earlier the, this sort of social element as well where you're actually dealing with people who are, are dealing with their own human problems and I suppose the animals are almost um what, what would you call it um so animal suffering is is of so, Alongside the human suffering, isn't it? And it, it's very hard for you because you're only dealing with the animal. But there are there are wider issues at play as well. Um, so I mean, we're we're just coming to the end of this podcast, and I mean, we've we've covered so many different things. We've got so many more questions for you. Um, that we probably won't be able to fit in. But I wondered maybe if, um, you'd like to talk just briefly about um, the importance of uh, neutering, because um, I know I know it's something that's quite um, something you're quite passionate about, especially. With um, people getting animals for the first time, and obviously the need for sort of regular vac- vaccinations and so on, I wondered maybe you could just sort of end on an, a note of advice for pet owners, really. Um, because I feel <laughs> as we're doing this educational service here, we should we should probably say something about about that while we've got you on on air.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try I'll try and keep it short and sweet because I could talk about it all day. Uh, but in in terms of neutering, yes, we we do advise neutering of of sort of dogs and cats absolutely so in terms of the females um, particularly female dogs if they're left unneutered they are at risk of getting something called a pyometra um which from the latin you may work out is literally just uh, a pussy uterus which is lovely uh, but it's a, a it's a life threatening um complication and it requires sort of emergency surgery and it's it's to be honest it's one of the main reasons that we actually get clients come to our practice from, from other practices because when you have this uh pyometria going on with your dog, the surgery generally will cost you upwards of a thousand pounds, um, which is obviously a very large amount of money and, and not something many people are able to 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 stoop up, um, but is something that you could prevent with a, a surgery that costs you generally less than two hundred pounds um if you just spare your dog when they're nice and healthy. And obviously the risks of, of that operation are much, much, much lower if you're doing it as an elective procedure when they're when they're healthy rather than doing it when they're in a life threatening, incredibly sick situation. Um, and it is very, very common. The other sort of benefits um are avoiding sort of accidental matings and accidental littles. Um, there are sort of thousands and thousands of, of dogs in rescue centres across the UK um, that need homes and sort of producing puppies when they don't have anywhere to go or where these homes could maybe take on a a rescue dog is is not ideal and a lot of people don't realise but dogs are still put to sleep across the UK simply because they do not have homes Um, and those numbers are in in the thousands so something to to really bear in mind from that point of view Um, and then also mammary tumours are a real issue so um, Dogs and cats, like humans, can get breast cancer, um, but that risk is, is reduced if they are if they are spayed.
0: Yeah, um, right. Well, I think that brings us nicely to the end of this episode. Um, obviously, I'll, I'll share your website um, with uh, listeners on on the website so that they can uh, they can see more about what what you do. Um, it's been really fascinating. Thank you very much, Kate.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening to the In the Zone podcast
1: with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. For more podcasts and interesting chat. Visit in the zone